all evolution hinges on successful reproduction of the next generation. In the case of humans, this is an enormous task. This is the real cost of our big brains. This is why we must cooperate and why tools like empathy and language evolve to enable that cooperation. All else of human nature is derivative of the single human condition. Empathy and violence, tribalism and warfare, storytelling, dance and music, all derivative. Our business as we go forward is to build a case for your well-being as it is built in humans, in mind, body, energetics, and motion, and the elements of life. But understand from the beginning that evolution, working in bone, muscle, neurons, fat, food, and fight, finally built a creature that is human. How are we different from all the rest of life? The paleoanthropologist Ian Tattersall offers a good summary. To put this at its most elementary, humans care at least to some extent about each other's welfare. And chimpanzees, as well as probably all of our other primate relatives, do not. Welcome back to Zoo Notable. I'm PJ with ZooFit, and today we celebrate not just nature, but human nature. Our natural inclination to run, jump, move, get outdoors, eat, sleep, and so much more. The book we're discussing is Go Wild by John Rady and Richard Manning. I read this book several years ago after listening to a philosopher note by Brian Johnson of Heroic and wanted to learn more. And it's been ages since I looked at Go Wild, but I remember listening to this book and nodding my head constantly at the incredible eye-opening wisdom flowing through. And the premise of Go Wild is about securing a healthier, happier future by adopting behaviors from our past, our distant past before the dawn of the agricultural revolution. Now, based in science, the authors tell us why our bodies and our minds need sleep the way we do, why our food choices impact our health, mostly in negative ways, and how we can improve it, and how we are genetically engineered throughout history to move. And what I love about this is that ZooFit shares a lot of overlapping ideas that the authors of Go Wild discuss. We are animals, and perhaps it is time to free ourselves from the afflictions of civilization, return to our healthy roots, and go a little wild. So what say you? Are you ready to learn about what our ancestors knew almost instinctively and follow evolution's rules for health and well-being? Let's go wild and find out. We'll start with big idea number one, why we have brains. Quote, British scientist Daniel Wolpert likes to begin his case with a sort of fundamental and vexing question that seriously shakes up our thinking. Why do we have a brain? He expects the obvious answer, to think. But this is completely wrong, he says. We have a brain for one reason only, to produce adaptable and complex movements. Now, when I first started doing Zoo Notables, I discussed Animals in Translation by Temple Grandin. It was there that I thought I had heard about sea squirts for the first time and the true reason we have a brain. Now, here's what Temple Grandin says. The idea of us changing our ways without noticing how bad things are getting is really disconcerting. 
This new trend, more like lifestyle, of being addicted to technology, our phones, and constant stimulation is very damaging to our brains and our bodies. Because we basically have a brain so we can move. The brain evolved in creatures to help them move around without knocking into things. Dr. Rodolfo Leonis explains, The sea squirt starts out in life looking something like a tadpole with about 300 brain cells. It ends up more like a turnip. The first day of its life, the sea squirt swims around until it finds its permanent home. Once it finds its spot, it doesn't move again for the rest of its life. Here's the interesting part. While it is swimming, it has a primitive nervous system, but once it becomes attached to an object, it eats its own brain. Since the sea squirt isn't going to move ever again, it doesn't need a brain. Now that was two or three years after I had read Go Wild. So you can imagine my surprise when I reread this passage recently from John Rady in Go Wild. He says, the telling encapsulation of this argument is the case of the sea squirt, a primitive sea animal with a rudimentary nervous system. Part of its life, the squirt spends time moving, but only to look for a spot where it can anchor itself in the path of a ready source of food. On doing so, its first act is to eat and digest its own brain. It doesn't need one any longer because it no longer needs to move. The association is clear. The more species needs to move, the bigger its brain. And although we don't think of it this way, the argument gets its clincher with the great ape that A, has the largest of brains, humans, and B, happens to be the champion of movements. Interesting. So ultimately, this tells me two things. No, it's not that I wasn't paying attention the first time I read Go Wild. It's more that every time I read a book, I obtain information that I need at that moment. Now, perhaps when I first read Go Wild, I was, uh, I was moving a lot more. I was a CrossFit coach. I did sloth army. I was training for a triathlon. I was a Zufa instructor. I really didn't have a problem staying still. But now I'm working on a book. I'm writing blogs and articles, and I'm working at my computer a lot more. And I desperately needed to be reminded of that sea squirt. Now, that's part of the second big thing about this big idea. When I see ideas repeated in multiple books, I pay attention. And this idea is repeated in many books. We have a brain so that we can move, not just to think. So my question for you is don't be a sea squirt. Don't sit around. And if you do, you might as well eat your brain and be a zombie. No one wants that. Besides, we're humans. We were born to move, jump, run, swim, crawl, climb. So let's get back to our wild, brainy nature and move just a little bit more. And big idea number two is train your brain or your brain trains you. Quote, it seems somewhat odd that memory or performance or cognition or even physical health get better as a direct result of training the mind to do nothing. A demonstrated improvement in immune response from qu simply quieting the mind? Yes, indeed. Or more profound still, recent results from one research proje project show a link between meditation and increased brain mass, including increased gray matters in regions of the brain associated with learning, memory, and emotional regulation. What this is saying is that the brain responds to meditation as a muscle does to exercise. And of course it does. 
Now, no one questions whether we should practice moving more in the form of exercise to train our muscles. It's one of the first things that I teach participants. If you want to squat better, you have to practice squatting. If your job requires you to bend over and pick heavy objects up a lot, wouldn't it behoove you to learn how to properly pick things up and then, you know, practice it? Well, the same goes for our brain. When we practice mindfulness or meditation or quiet stillness, I'm not picky about what you call it, it's like taking your brain to the gym. It makes it stronger. How much stronger? Well, your brain does some metaphorical heavy lifting day in and day out. But training, it can help us focus more, even outside of our mindfulness sessions. It can give us clarity and often provide easier solutions to problems or challenges that might have felt vexing in the past. We have more patience with our family, our animals, and again, other situations that may previously make us lose our minds. Now, I for one noticed that when I didn't feel what was called lock anxiety when I practice meditation. Now, for those of you not in the animal care field, lock anxiety is similar to the, did I leave the oven turned on fear, but multiplied by like a thousand. Meditation can help you get to sleep faster. It helps curb cravings for junk food and it increases your willpower. or Maybe it improves your motivation to take on challenging tasks. And these are all great, but you know, what's the worst that can happen if I don't meditate. Well, as the authors of Go Wild tell us, someone once argued that there is no choice about whether to train your dog. You either train your dog or your dog trains you. Something similar happens with our brains. That's right. We train our brains with mindfulness or meditation or just goes off on tangents whenever it wants to while we're having a conversation with someone or concentrating on shifting a tiger or trying to multitask. And just like a dog will do whatever they want unless they have had some training and some discipline, our brain will start thinking random thoughts whenever it feels like it. So would you like a strong, healthy brain that works for you and for your well-being or one that works against your goals and aspirations and actually diminishes your health? The training can start anytime and anywhere. It's just up to you to choose. And big idea number three is, are you good stress or chronic stress? Quote, the fact is a complete absence of stress in your life is not an ideal state. For a short one or two hours, stress does wonderful things for the brain. Robert Sapolsky, a Stanford neurologist said, the hippocampus, which is involved in memory, works better when you are stressed for a little while. Your brain releases more dopamine, which plays a role in the experience of pleasure early on in stress. It feels wonderful and your brain works better. Now, most people believe that stress is always a horrible, no good, very bad thing, but that's not the, actually the case. We wouldn't function if we didn't experience some stress and some stress is actually very good for us. Now, I equate this type and level of stress to that which we experience when we exercise. When we exercise, we put our body into stress mode. But then we stop and we are able to recover. And during that recovery time, our brain and our body are basically conspiring for us. Kind of imagine the brain and body collaborating something like this. We don't want to feel like that again. So let's make those muscles tougher and stronger. So when we repeat that exercise, it doesn't stress us out. 
However, while some stress is good, too much or chronic stress is not good. When we don't get enough sleep, we pay for it in more stress. Too much sleep deprivation and now we're bordering on that chronic stress, which is unhelpful because we don't have a recovery period. So here's what John Rady and Richard Manning have to say. The strategy for coping with stress is not removing stress or what we call stress from our lives. Rather, as we have argued throughout, the real problem, the killer, is chronic, unrelenting, unremitting series of regular events that wear us down. You can skip a night's sleep now and again. In fact, it may even be good for you to do so, but not day after day. You can tolerate and even thrive on an astounding variety and variability in your diet, even enjoying an occasional slice of chocolate cake, but the daily unrelenting dose of big gulp Cokes will kill you. Every runner knows you build strength on your rest days. Dealing with a lion every now and again makes you better at dealing with lions. Allowing your life to surmount occasional challenges is inoculation, almost literally, against future stress stresses. <clears throat> so, we can embrace a little stress. A little stress is good for us, provided we have time to, for recovery and recuperating. My question is, how is your stress? Do you have good stress or chronic bad stress? And how could you start to resolve some of that bad chronic stress? Maybe it's with movement, sleeping better, or maybe you can find it in our next big idea, in nature. Which is big idea number four, biophilia, doing your body and your mind good. Quote, Japan is the center of some of the most interesting and innovative thinking about biophilia, a national movement called Shinrin-yoku, which translates poorly into English, but means something like bathing or basking in the forest. The movement has spawned a series of studies that use objective markers like cortisol, heart rate, and blood pressure to demonstrate that there are real and measurable benefits to well-being and mental performance through simple contact with nature. For instance, a number of studies have shown that people in hospitals get measurably better faster if they're in a room with a window or have a bit of green as simple as a potted plant. Placing potted plants in view of workers at one factory reduced time lost to sick leave by 40%. And do you need to de-stress a little? Well, a walk in nature might just be the thing. Now, I had to laugh as I read this passage or listened to it once more because I was literally walking through some woods at work while I read. The forest bathing has become a pretty popular concept nowadays, almost 10 years after Gone Wild has, was written. But that wasn't always the case. It's because of people like Richard Louvre and last week's Nature's Best Hope author Douglas Ptolemy that we are more aware of the risk with disconnecting from our wild nature and the great outdoors. The problem is, up until recently, the outdoors and nature were basically villainized by, well, I'll be honest, it was my generation. This is a generation where video games began to enter our households, where social media was introduced, and where computers became mainstream. And I don't feel that's a coincidence. I do still struggle with game addiction on my phone, and I'm a nature-loving fanatic. Now, how hard must it be to get kids who don't like nature to turn off the television and play outside? But like I mentioned last week in Nature's Best Hope, 
The benefits to getting in touch with nature are astounding. And Go Wild didn't just repeat some of those statistics. And again, I swear, if I need to go to the hospital for any reason, I am demanding a room with a view of trees. But it also added to it. Potted plants reduce sick leave by 40%. Now, I will admit, I do think that some of this is a bit subjective. Now, when we work in nature, if you are a person that works outside, but you still don't have the de-stressing or relaxing or recuperating methods for dealing with those challenges, we might become desensitized to some of those benefits. Why else would zookeepers have a 90% rate of experiencing burnout and compassion fatigue? But I do still believe that nature can heal us. We just need to be deliberate and mindful about it. So if you work outdoors but don't do anything non-work related in nature, being outside can still drain you. So I think the answer is make sure that we get a chance to use nature to relax and unwind. If you work at a park, visit the ocean or go to a secluded woods. Perhaps getting a private nature sanctuary is the way to go. Plant a garden in your backyard or even on your balcony and let taking care of the plants heal you. We are an outdoor species, whether we act like it or not. So let nature take care of you so that we can continue to take care of nature. Go outside and go wild. And finally, we have big idea number five. Your well-being is up to you. Quote, the sources of our happiness are complicated, rooted as they are in the complexity of our bodies, but also, as we have argued, in the complexities of the twists and turns of our individual life stories, all of which forces the conclusion that there is no single prescription for well-being. Given this, the temptation is to paraphrase our favorite advice on writing from the great journalist A.J. Liebling. The only way to live is well, and how you do that is your own damned business. <laughs> so, uh, welcome to ZooFit, or maybe it's the Go Wild philosophy. Sometimes it gets hard to differentiate for me. Now, when I first started ZooFit, way, 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 way before I started calling it ZooFit, I realized that each person had their own unique path to wellness. It was just like training animals. There's no one way to teach an animal a new behavior. And each species, just like each person, presents a different personality, different characteristics, and different challenges. Yes, you can teach an elephant, an otter, and even a dolphin to be voluntarily constrained, but each is very different. An elephant might need to go into a chute, a dolphin into a stretcher, while an otter can voluntarily enter a crate. Each method is going to naturally be a little different. Now, it took me trying to copy my husband who was doing CrossFit and then recognizing that I did not like CrossFit for me to realize this eye-opening and life-changing fact. There is no the way or one true path to achieving your goal, whatever that goal may be. Now, for many of us, we want to achieve health and well-being, but maybe some of us are after a career or wealth or writing a book or, well, you know, you can fill in the plank. The point is, is that how do you do it is completely up to you. Go Wild, like my program ZooFit, offers some tools and suggestions based on science and personal experience, but that's all those are, suggestions. 
How you go about your journey is completely up to you. And even if it's off the beaten path, that's okay. In fact, I feel the world could use a lot less convention and a lot more innovation. So what's your way? Well, maybe it's time to embark on your own journey and find out. And I can't wait to hear about how you've connected to your true wild nature, eating clean, living green, and training positive, taking care of yourself so you can take care of the world. Thanks again for joining me with Go Wild by John Rady and Richard Manning. If you liked this new notable, you will love this book. You can check it out at your local library or listen it on your library app or grab a copy for yourself. Connect with your wild nature and break free from the afflictions of civilization. And if you like this note, you may also enjoy my notes on Blue Mind, Animals in Translation, Zoo Fit Safari, and Zoo Ubiquity. You can see the links for those zoo notables in the description of this episode. And next week, we're going to take a deep dive into the Animal Training Bible, Karen Pryor's classic book on training titled Don't Shoot the Dog. Until then, take care. Remember, it's all good to go a little wild. I'm going to leave you with just a few quotes from the book, Go Wild. John Rady and Richard Manning say, Humans are, in fact, the best endurance runners on the planet. The best. They also say, Physical exercise is not about weight loss. It's about your well-being. Evolutionary biologist Richard Dawkins once said, Nature is not cruel, only pitilessly indifferent. This is the hardest lesson for humans to learn. We cannot admit that things might be neither good nor evil, neither cruel nor kind, but simply callous, indifferent to all suffering, lacking all purpose. Richard Manning and John Rady say also that Elizabeth Marshall Thomas, the writer who spent her formative years in with African hunter-gatherers, writes a great deal about lions in her account of the San people of the Kalahari. The San people she knew did indeed face lions as predators, as people have for almost all of time. Yet these people seem to have a finely wrought and intricate relationship with lions, the animals that owned the night. She said, among the people we knew, only lions generated profound respect. Respect, not terror, but respect. Again, we can respect our nature. We can respect wild nature, not with terror, but with, uh, with admiration and with hope. Thanks, everyone, and I'm going to catch you all next time. <laughs>